Publishing. I'm your host, Paula Croxton. In the last few episodes, we've been talking with John Charles Park and Beta McAdam of the University of Pittsburgh about their experience from conception through publishing their paper, Anxiety Evokes Hyperfrontality, and Disrupt Rule Relevant Encoding by Dorsal Medial Prefrontal Cortex Neurons in the Journal of Neuroscience in 2016. We've got as far as how to prepare a manuscript, select a journal, and submit the paper. In this episode, I wanted to find out more about the review process. So you're a reviewing editor at the Journal of Neuroscience, is that right? That's right. That's Jim Kneerim, who is also a professor of neuroscience at Johns Hopkins University. I asked Jim to tell me what he does in his role as a reviewing editor and how the review process works. So the Journal of Neuroscience has a two-tiered review process. So just below the editor-in-chief, there's a team of what's called senior editors, and their job is to take all the manuscripts that come in and then assign them to a reviewing editor, which is the second tier, based on the expertise of the reviewing editors, based sometimes on the requests that the authors have of who they would like to have handle the manuscript. They don't always go by the author's request, but, but they try to when it seems appropriate. And then when I get assigned a manuscript, my job then is to uh, first take, take a quick look at the paper and decide whether it falls within the scope of the journal, and the senior editor will also have taken a look at that, but sometimes they may assign it to the reviewing editors, and I may take a more careful look. You know, they've got a lot more papers to handle than I do, so so I might be taking a more careful look. And if I decide that, in my opinion, it's just not really what the journal publishes. You know, we're really publishing work on mechanistic understanding of brain function. And if it's a paper that just doesn't fall within that scope, I will initiate a consultation with other reviewing editors and the senior editor just to decide whether or not we should just send it back to the authors and say, this really has very little chance of getting accepted. It's it's better for another venue. But that's very rare at the Journal of Neuroscience. We don't have a triage process that's uh, maybe 15, 20%, I think, is the numbers that we will just decide it's just not appropriate for the journal. 80% of them will go out to review, which is one of the things that authors like about the Journal of Neuroscience, because it's a very high probability that the paper will get reviews by their peers. So my job is to then basically look at the paper and decide who would be a good reviewer for that paper. And I will suggest to the editorial office five or six names, and they have a process then that will go down that list and we'll send out the emails. We get two people, or in some cases, three people to agree to review it and or ask me for more names if we can't get people from that initial list to uh, agree and then i wait and then i bug the reviewers to send their reviews back uh, people are very busy and oftentimes it takes a little bit of prodding to get the reviews in and but once we get them in i have to then read the reviews and make a recommendation to the senior editor about what to do either to just reject the paper outright and say you know it just the reviews aren't enthusiastic enough to to consider further to accept the paper as is and say okay this is great maybe some minor modifications or have a decision that the authors need to revise the paper but then they can send it back and we'll have the reviewers look at it again when the reviewers are of the same opinion then that makes my job really easy if the reviewers have split opinions which actually happens much more frequently than one would like I guess because different scientists have different opinions on the paper. Sometimes the differences of opinion are on the technical merit of the paper. One reviewer may find a 
flaw that the other reviewer didn't see or didn't have the same expertise and, and, and didn't pick up on. Many times it's just a question of the impact of the paper. One reviewer may say, this is great, you know, everyone's gonna love this paper. Another reviewer might say, well, it's technically, it's, it's fine, but I don't think it's the same general interest for the general neuroscience. We try to publish papers that are not just of interest only to a small subfield, but papers that would be of interest to a wider neuroscience community as you know, if it's a membership of the Society for Neuroscience. So some reviewers will have different opinions on, on that. So then my job is to then read their views, look at the paper and try to make a decision about whether to seek yet another opinion from another reviewer and then make a recommendation to the senior editor who then you know, reads my recommendation and takes a look at the reviews and makes the final decision, either goes with my recommendation or if the senior editor does not think that my recommendation is the right one, then that senior editor will initiate a consultation with me and we'll go back and forth until we come to some agreement on what's the best way to proceed. So that's basically what the reviewing editor does, uh, just kind of shepherding the paper through the review process. And when the reviews are in agreement, it's pretty easy just to you know, make a decision. The job is hard when the reviewers are of different opinions. And then I've got to go to work and really try to make sense of what's going on and which of the two reviews makes most sense. I asked Jim to tell me how they choose the appropriate reviewers and whether they take into account the list provided by the authors. Pretty much every journal will ask you for reviewer suggestions when you submit a paper. So the easy thing is when authors ask to exclude a reviewer, in almost every single case, we will honor that request at the Bureau of Neuroscience. I certainly do, and that is certainly my understanding of sort of the unofficial or official editorial policy. Whether we will go to the reviewers that the author suggests we send the paper to, that's variable. That's a question of it. That suggest person is someone who I think uh, will be a good reviewer, will be impartial, has the expertise to review the paper, then I will frequently choose at least some of those names I'll put into the, the list of potential reviewers that the office will try to uh, solicit. Very rarely will both or even all three reviewers, at least the ones that I handle, be from that list. One assumes that the authors put on people who they think will be partial to, to that. And you know, I, I want to get another opinion as well. So frequently the, the reviewers will be one from the list of subjective reviewers and one or two from another list that I chose myself. And then that's a question of me then finding people who I think have the expertise. So if it's paper that's in my field, then I can very easily think of people who would be very good reviewers for a paper. Uh, if it's a paper that's you know outside my precise area of expertise, well, then I'll have to do some research. The journal has a database of reviewers that have keywords and so forth that allow me to search for people with that expertise, or I'll go on to PubMed and do a search. And that way, I'll just try to find people who seem to have the, the right expertise. The idea is you know, just trying to get people who you think will have the expertise and, and will be there. Regarding the reviewing process, we have a pool of reviewers itself. And also, of course, we take into account the suggestions of the authors. Of course, the authors can also suggest which reviewers should not be consulted. And this is something that we you know, absolutely honor. And the suggestions of the authors about the potential reviewers that should look at the paper of us, quite helpful. We definitely use the suggestions. They can be, and in many cases, they are overlapping with the reviewers that we may choose. 
And they can be really helpful to also see how the author thinks about their paper, you know, what kind of expertise this paper would need to be evaluated properly. That was Mina Kvayo from the journal Cell. I asked Katja Bros from Neuron to describe more about how reviewers are chosen. The way that I like to think of it is as editors, we're convening an expert panel who's going to advise the editorial team on the suitability of this paper for Neuron, in our case it's Neuron. And the kinds of things that we look for at Neuron you know, are obviously technical standards, sort of the technical competence of the work. I mean, we, we would certainly choose reviewers who'd be able to judge that, so we'd look for reviewers who may have technical expertise that relate to the work. But we're also looking for views on how impactful and significant the work is for the field. And so we may also have reviewers on board who you know, clearly would have some technical relevance to the work, but who may be particularly well suited to comment on where this fits into the field, where it fits into the field in terms of advance and impact and importance. We are also always trying to think about consistency in our decisions across the journal, and so in some cases we may have had previous submissions that are related thematically or in terms of technical expertise, and so we may choose reviewers who had seen previous work for the journal and to be able to comment on kind of the relative merits and relationship between the studies. But essentially what they're providing us with feedback on is the, the technical and conceptual quality of the work, and we're looking for their expertise to mirror that. I think where it gets really challenging is for papers, which is most papers these days in Neuron that are kind of highly integrated across fields, very interdisciplinary, maybe very collaborative, maybe they include both, you know, mouse genetics, some systems neuroscience, behaviors, and physiology, and at that point, you know, it can get kind of tricky to cover all bases. And so there I think it just becomes a matter of the editor's expertise in weighing kind of which aspects of the paper kind of need more targeted coverage versus others. It may be that the paper you know, has particular concerns or we have particular concerns about one element of the paper and we would you know, then maybe make sure that we have one or two reviewers to be able to touch on that but rely on them to maybe not be primary experts in some of the other sort of secondary aspects of the paper. Um, and so how much weight does the author's own requests for recommended reviewers carry when you're, when you're deciding on reviewers? So I think authors' suggestions for reviews are actually very helpful. So at, at Neuron, I mean, we certainly take suggestions. I think most journals do. We also allow authors to make limited exclusions. So in our case, in our meaning cell press, we usually allow authors to exclude up to three reviewers. No questions asked. If that can be for any any reason, you don't really need to tell us. I mean, I usually advise people to be judicious in why they exclude people. And often, I think some of the reasons people have for thinking someone may not be a supporter of their work are kind of mis misguided or misplaced. And so, I think you have exclusions as an option at Cell Press. I think most journals, if they indicate that they allow exclusions in their author guidelines, they're, they're true to that. I, mean, I think sometimes authors think that maybe even if we say we allow exclusions, we really don't. We do. And we will abide by those. If, of course, you're excluding large fields or, you know, entire communities, we're going to get back to you. We're going to say, you know, yeah, you can't 
you can't exclude all of presynaptic LTP or you can't exclude <laughs> all of Harvard University, which some people have tried. <laughs> so it needs to be more limited. But again, I mean, my major piece of advice there is, is I think people often, I mean, to be honest, get a little paranoid about exclusions and maybe aren't, aren't using it very wisely. Um, sometimes the people that you think are your biggest supporters are in fact maybe large critics, or maybe your largest critics on the outside are actually supporters. For suggestions, you know, we do use suggestions, so the way that we think about suggestions is that we bring our own mindset to who we choose as reviewers, and if, if who we think is appropriate happens to overlap with who you think is appropriate, you know, great, there's no reason why we wouldn't use your suggestions. Certainly sometimes we have papers that are maybe a little bit kind of outside of the, the beaten path at Neuron, and then having suggestions from an author can be really helpful. We would then do some due diligence on those suggested reviewers, see if they seem like a good fit for us. Maybe they've reviewed for us before, maybe they haven't. But we, we certainly would sort of look into whether they're a good reviewer possibility for that paper. The other thing where suggestions really help is I think by making suggestions, we might not end up using your suggested reviewer for your paper, but I think the kind of accumulation of input from authors on who they think would be good reviewers can be really helpful for us in building our review database. And so for instance, there might be, you know, a younger investigator that maybe we're not, we don't have on our radar at Neuron a lot. And if a number of authors in a field suggest that person, I mean, it starts to put it on us to think, well, who is this person? Let's see if they might be a good reviewer for Neuron. So I strongly encourage people to suggest reviewers. I think it's a great thing to do. I asked Mena what she thinks makes a good reviewer. Well, I will tell you very practically, timeliness, constructiveness, rigor. It is really important for us also that the reviewer provides, you know, a clear, a clear understanding of the paper and a clear recommendation of the paper, that, it can, that the reviewer can pinpoint the technical and the conceptual advances and also concerns. We also think a good reviewer will also be a reviewer who is able to put himself or herself in the shoes of, of the author and being also also able to bring across the criticisms in a constructive way, in a way which is going to be helpful to the author to move ahead with the paper. You know, I think that's that's something that is important thinking about how the author will receive the criticism and what is the best way to address this criticism. So I think the tone of the reviews is also very helpful. I asked Vita McAdam, senior author of the paper we've been following, her opinions on what makes a good reviewer. What I always tell my, my trainees that help me review is that write a review that you would like to get. It's okay for it to be really critical. If the work isn't sound, it's okay to reject it, but it needs to be fairly written and it needs to be informative. So that's what makes a good review. And Anybody who's published papers knows that you could get a three or four page review that goes on and on, but it's actually helpful. Or you can get something that's two sentences and it's not helpful. Once you've received the reviews back from the reviewers, how do you as editors make a decision what to do next? Yeah, so once we receive the reviews, I mean, the first thing that the editor would do is obviously, you know, usually actually go back and reread the manuscript in light of some of the comments in, in the reviews. The This is the handling editor. At this stage, I think the handling editor is the first person who really starts to kind of integrate the reviews with, with the paper itself. That's Catch Your Bros again. 
Can't you describe to me what happens when the reviewers don't agree? At Neuron, it's really very common for there to be what we call split reviews, so differences of opinion from the reviewers, and those can be you know, modestly split to very split. Um, it's, it's kind of amazing. You'd expect people to sometimes be split in their views on things like the advance or the impact for the field, but sometimes there's even splits along the lines of, you know, technical quality, which mm. I think is explainable, especially in fields where the, you know, the methodology is still evolving. I mean, maybe the statistics are even still evolving and that there isn't yet a hard and fast community bar for, for where, you know, a particular technique might, might rest. We do often get split reviews at Neuron, at least. I mean, we, we certainly don't consider the decision as being a simple summation of the reviews. It's not as simple as, oh, you get two out of three positive reviews, you're golden, or the fact that, you know, if you get, you know, one critical review that you're not going to move forward. So it's, it's not that. I mean, what an editor is doing is they're really trying to integrate the comments, um, both specific and general, that the reviewers make. They bring in their own assessment. They might bring in other feedback from the team, other decisions that we've made, sort of thinking about kind of consistency. And from that, sort of have a view towards, you know, is, is this a paper that at this stage is appropriate for Neuron, which is great. I mean, usually that's a set of positive reviews that really say, yeah, this is great, move this forward. But often you're kind of in a space where you're trying to figure out with revisions and with what revisions could the paper be appropriate for Neuron. And I think that's really where the art of the editor's job is, is really trying to integrate what the reviewers have to say, starting to think about sort of what revisions would be necessary to, to make the paper a neuron paper and which ones might be, you know, nice to haves but not absolutely necessary. And then from that, create a recommendation to the authors. I mean, in general, for Neuron, when we're inviting a paper to revise, I mean, we're very sensitive to, I think, the, the length of time it could take to get a paper into publication from when you first submit. And so we're reluctant to invite papers to revise that are going to take you know, months, years to really get to the point where it might be a neuron paper. And so what we're really looking for when we're inviting a paper to revise is that there's a limited set of revisions, you know, on the scale of a couple months that the author could do. Maybe they've already done some of them. Maybe they'd have to initiate some of them, that there's some clarifications they may have to provide. But with, with those things done, that we're reasonably confident that it would get the support of the reviewers and we could move forward with publication. If the right. paper seems further off than that, so there may be papers that we think, wow, this could be really exciting, but, you know, they're, they're like six months off. They still have quite a bit to do. Probably what we would do is think about rejecting the paper in the sense of telling the authors, you know, here's what we feel is, is sort of missing for Neuron. This seems like a lot for you to do at this point you'd have some choices. I mean, you could you could pursue those things and we, we might be open to looking at it again, but you might just find it a better use of your time to move forward elsewhere where, where you wouldn't need to take it as far. And that is technically a rejection letter, but people some people refer to it as a rejection with an open door. And certainly the papers like that we do publish them in Neuron. I mean, not, not a small number of papers get published in Neuron that start that way, that start as a, it's not quite ready yet. You know, you we'd look at it again if you did more, but it, it seems quite a bit more than a typical revision cycle. What's your opinion on, on signing reviews? Do you, think, do you think that the blind review process is the best process that we have available to us? And do you think it will change? 
I mean, my, my personal opinion, and this is as an editor now for 16 years, having seen thousands of manuscripts and tens of thousands of reviews, is, is that, um, that blind peer review is still the best way for most reviewers to be able to feel that they can freely express their opinions. I think that, that it's, it's just a part of human nature, I think, um, of being you know, somewhat concerned about attaching your name openly to comments, even if they're written in a very fair, critical way, because you don't know how they're going to be taken by the other side. And, and in many cases, a reviewer might be reviewing a manuscript that they don't know much about the author on the other side. In some cases, they may. But I think that there's just an element of kind of trust in that. And I think most reviewers still feel that by being anonymous that they can be more more honest. I mean, I do take the point that people raise that sometimes by hiding beyond anonymity, one, you know, might say things in a way that they wouldn't say if they were out in the open or, or maybe it leads to a sort of a digression of the tone. I mean, I'd say that's our job as the editors to monitor. I mean, that all reviews, whether they're positively recommending or negatively recommending should be kind of constructive and critical and fair. And if the tone is really off, we do try to, to try to monitor that. But I do think in most cases, people are more honest when, when their name is not attached to it. We do allow people to sign reviews. So if somebody signs their review within our system, we, we allow that to go forward. There's no issue with that. One thing that is being debated right now is whether the reviewing process should be anonymous or not. I asked Peter McAdam and Junchil Park, the first author of the paper, for their thoughts on whether we as reviewers should sign our reviews. I go back and forth. I have signed reviewers in the past. I have stopped because I feel like it needs to be a process that's applied equally everywhere. I have found that when I sign my reviews, I'm, I become a much nicer reviewer. <laughs> <laughs> so in that sense, it's good. On the other hand, you know, I can afford to sign it because I have, I have tenure, I have grants, I have, I'm a well-established investigator. I'm not sure if a young person, if an assistant professor is comfortable signing his review of someone's paper who is going to, who's on the study section that is reviewing this young investigator's grant next month. I have a lot of misgivings about it. I think in principle it sounds awesome, but I think when you think about the nitty-gritty of it, and especially for young investigators, I think it could be problematic. Junchil, have you done any reviewing yet? Well, no, not by myself, but I sort of participated in, in the review mm. process. Like I gave some opinions on certain data analysis, things like that. Yeah. And what, what do you think? Would you, would you sign your reviews when you get to the point where you're reviewing papers in your own right? Yeah, I think that it really depends, right? Depending on the, the review uh, that, I'm, that I'm writing and the status that I'm currently in. But I, in general, agree uh, with the, the policy that like signing a review and especially the, some of the journals are asking the reviewers to come to an agreement, right, before they get back to the authors, right? And I think that could be used in a constructive way that they, uh, like, reviewers speak to each other and then they try to sort of come up with a reasonable final review. I think that can help the publication process in a constructive way. I asked Jim Kneering what he thinks the major benefits of the peer review process are. I mean, the major benefit is what its, what its historical role has been, to just have some quality control over of, of what gets published in the literature. I mean, there are so many journals now, so many more than, you know, even a couple of decades ago. There's a lot of work out there, and, you know, most papers get published somewhere. 
the scientific community really relies a lot, I think, on the peer review process at the journals that are considered the, the top journals in their fields to really you know, try to make sure that the work that's being published is rigorous and meets standards that would be applicable to, to that journal. That being said, we all know, we all go to journal clubs and we all read papers and present papers to journal clubs and everyone's looking at the cells, how did that get published? <laughs> so we, we, we know it's not a foolproof system. Good science will get published somewhere eventually. In the long run, system works. In the short run, but run though, in, in any particular experience you might have at one journal, it's noisy. You may get a bad reviewer or a bad process at that one journal and then someone else, another journal, you know, will get different reviewers and a different outcome. I do think that Things are changing, though. I firmly believe that the reviewing process in a number of years from now will be very different from what we have now in terms of whether reviewing will be a post-publication process in which people will put their, and, and in some fields this is already done, right, where people put their papers on archives and so forth, and, and it's open for comment, then there'll be some kind of a peer review when your colleagues and other people read your paper and comment on it, and there's a back-and-forth discussion. I, I think in the long run, we'll be better. This is not just a question of two, maybe three people reading a paper and deciding whether it's worthy or not. It's a question of, well, here's the data out there. Now the whole scientific community will weigh in on it, and, and from that, I think the really good papers will come to the floor, less so on what journal they're published in, but more so on the opinions of the scientific community about, wow, this paper is really one of, one of great results. Thank you for joining this week, and thanks to all who shared their experiences with us. In the next episode, we'll talk about what happens when you receive your reviews and how to respond to them. Don't forget, you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, or find full episodes and sign up for weekly emails at Neuronline. Visit neuronline.sfn.org forward slash podcast. I've been Paula Croxon, and this was the Neuronline podcast, The Perils of Publishing.